Geoengineering is becoming a more common topic as people feel more desperate about our environmental situation. Geoengineering is things that will lower the Earth's temperature, like by putting stuff to reflect the sunlight out, putting stuff in the atmosphere, in the oceans, to engineer different results. The common theme among people talking about these things is that when things get serious, we have to put everything on the table, even things that may not work. The problem isn't if they'll work on their intended goal, but all their unintended side effects. Over and over again in history, the unintended side effects dwarf the intended ones when we play with nature on a global scale, on big scales like this. In fact, the story of oil, plastics, and most other environmental problems today, since nobody chose to pollute, no one said, let's go pollute. They tried to improve people's lives despite side effects, and they hoped that those side effects would be small. Geoengineering continues that story of trying to help and hoping the side effects would be small. Each time people thought that they would solve the thing, each time it exacerbated, and here we are. What got us into this mess? The thinking, the philosophy, the mental models, they won't get us out. They will only get us deeper. I'm recording this episode because of two recent pieces on geoengineering. Gernot Wagner, he wrote a book that just came out, and I have not yet read the book, but he and I met for coffee, must have been a month or so now. He told me a fair amount about it. I don't know it backward and forward, so I may miss some things there. And I, uh, he and I are scheduled or scheduling to meet again, and I'll certainly read the book. And then the New York Times did a piece by a guy named David Keith up at Harvard. I haven't met him. I suspect we have mutual friends because I think his department is the same one that Eric Mazur is in. That was one of the last, that, which is to say, I think the applied physics department at Harvard's engineering school, just before the pandemic, that was one of the last visits that I had was up to see Eric. Both of their pieces are the results of years of research, a lifetime of learning and education and dedicated practice. This episode, by contrast, is, well, it's a lifetime of work and uh, certainly a PhD in physics and all this other stuff that I've done that I'm responding to. I, I tweeted about David Keith's piece. He tweeted back to one of my tweets. In what way did I downplay potential for cutting emissions? It certainly is possible, indeed essential. In the tweet said, I said we were effed if we didn't do it. In what specific way did you think I was unbalanced about risks? Please cite data. You can see that we're engaging some... Actually, he, David Keith, has invited me to engage with him on Twitter. Now, I think that's a disaster to do it by 160 characters at a time. People on Twitter are trying to checkmate each other. I think that's what he said when he was like, please cite data. I think that's a sort of tactical move to shut the other person down. Not really sure. I haven't met the guy. But I will provide data, but not the kind that he thinks. It's not going to be numbers data. It's going to be... Uh, as you'll see, it'll be, I believe that history proves his approach a um, mistake, maybe disastrous. But that'll come out over the course of this episode. Both present I, with unassailable perspectives that we have to study this stuff, not dismiss these things out of hand. And I agree with that. I think these should be studied. I don't think we should dismiss things out of hand, especially if we're just like scared of technology. But I think they miss that many have studied these things and out of thoughtful consideration and with difficulty, but nonetheless confidence, reject geoengineering. Now, I agree that it's worth studying. With 7.9 billion people on the planet, I have no objection to some studying. There's plenty of resources to studying what could be done. Maybe something could be discovered that a lot of people would agree to do. Now, I'd like to say you have to read David Keith's piece and Gernot Wagner's book to get a good feel for it. I'm not going to say don't read the article of the book, Besides that, I haven't read the book, so I can't say whether to read it or not. I will read it. I'm confident that both of them mean well and want to save humanity from ecological catastrophe. I believe that both value, they both say that they value stopping emissions as primary. Nothing works without that. 
So I'm not saying don't read them, but, well, I guess I recommend other works first. I would start with Limits to Growth, uh, Silent Spring, even Walden. But I'm going to get later to other things that I think would be more specifically useful to this particular case. Now, I may be misinterpreting, but I see them as approaching geoengineering in two ways. At a science and engineering level, which is to say understanding the situation, both the state of nature and the state of our technology and how we could use it, and the state of innovating solutions, how well we could do that. And the other level is at the decision-making level, figuring out what we should do. And for context, I guess I should spell this out. For people who don't know, I have a PhD in physics. I helped launch satellites with NASA and ESA, which is the European Space Agency, and this was to observe atmospheres. I've invented and patented several inventions, brought them to working in the world. I raised millions of dollars to do it, so I've reduced inventions to practice, and they worked uh, in very difficult conditions. I also ran businesses. I got an MBA. I coach executives at some of the world's largest and most prominent organizations. So I'm not a babe in the woods in these areas. They have their expertise, probably in some areas, definitely in some areas beyond mine, but not a babe in the woods. Now, what data do I suggest, and what do I suggest reading first before their works? While it's tempting to look at it as an engineering issue, I see it as a high-stakes decision-making process where we don't have the luxury of not responding somehow, but at the same time, we can't possibly have all the information that we want. And sections of the global economy, including millions to billions of lives, will be affected. So this is very high stakes. Potentially, you've heard it, probably, even human extinction is in play. That's possible. Now, there's precedent. This is, we're certainly at a unique point in history, but the data is past times when decisions at this magnitude were made with this you know, there's data, but there's not all the data that you'd like to be there, and yet you still have to act. Now, before I get into the details, big, giant caveat. Nothing from history is perfectly relevant to now because everything's unique. We are in uncharted territory, and in all comparisons with anything else in history, with any other situation, there are more differences than similarities. I wish that, you know, we had an alternate universe where we could run a few simulations and see what came out. We don't have that. We have no alternate universe to practice on. Only history of huge decisions. I don't like this situation either. I don't like extrapolating this much, but I agree that we have to do some research, and I think this is the research that's more relevant. Well, both researchers are relevant, but I don't see people talking about this research. How do we make decisions when we don't have enough data and we can't possibly have enough data? Even more caveat, each comparable itself that I'll go over in a second could be studied forever in infinite detail None had control groups. There were no alternate realities where we ran different situations and it worked out one way this way and another way that way. But like Gernot and Keith, I believe in more study. And at the end, I'll get to where lines of research that I prefer could lead. What were these comparables? Before going into any one detail, I'm going to describe the ones that I've written out here. So one is Vietnam. America's involvement in Vietnam and Johnson's and the best and the brightest that he brought with him into the White House, the de- and not in Congress and throughout America, the decision to go into Vietnam to escalate. The space shuttle that exploded, the decision to launch, when there was some data, but it was colder than usual, so that's what, another one. Building highways into cities, Robert Moses, later Jane Jacobs, the decision to build roads and develop a strategy. I know about New York because I've read The Power Broker and The Death and Life of Great American Cities, but... What happened here was copied or done also all across the country to, okay, so that's another one, building highways into cities. D-Day and Eisenhower, the choice to launch a huge amphibious assault with the fate of the free world at stake, 
not enough information to make the decision easy. The Green Revolution, Norman Borlaug, the decision to save lots of people's lives in the moment, but at what cost in the future? The Cuban Missile Crisis, another situation where it seemed very clear what to do, all the data pointed in one direction. It seemed impossible to go any other way, and yet the other way seems to have been successful. And then a couple smaller ones, a business case. Uh, CVS Drugs, when they rebranded to CVS Health, they felt, well, we can't do, be a health store and sell cigarettes. So the decision to sell or not sell cigarettes, their number one profit item. And then the big case, actually, I don't know if it's bigger than all of these, but historically, the decision in the British Empire, or actually among citizens in it, to, in the late 1700s, early 1800s, to try to abolish slavery, and then ultimately, they ultimately succeeded. So let me go into a little more detail about each of these cases. Vietnam, McNamara, and the best and brightest from Harvard and all these other top schools, uh, we had beaten Hitler. The data was the last war. McNamara and others, they sought numbers, lots and lots of numbers, kill ratios, what we could manufacture, things like that. But the underlying model to all of this was the domino theory, among other things, but the domino theory played heavily. Also, that we are huge and they're a third world country. We beat Hitler. I mean, the domino theory said, if we don't protect this country, it will fall and the next one will fall and the next one will fall and, the next, and then we're all lost. So they felt like we had to do this. And we also felt like we can go and pave the place over by Christmas and be home. Now, Johnson, the ultimate decision maker here, was focused on a domestic agenda where he was a master of the Senate. And he just, I think, roughly speaking, he wanted this foreign thing to go away. He didn't want to face it. I guess he wanted to delegate it to others. The military said, we have solutions. They believed that they could overpower and had to overpower because of the domino theory. We must go and win this war and we can win it. We know we could win it. Looking back, the domino theory based on, I don't know what it was based on. I think it was without basis, but it was wrong. And the numbers, focusing on the numbers and all our weaponry, distracted from hearts and minds, which I believe we did not really work on very well there. So I'm not going to go into detail about America's involvement in Vietnam over the course of the 60s, its escalation or its descent, depending how you look at it. I just want to say it's a case where a decision was, I think, kind of not made, but ultimately made by not making it to follow our noses into a huge situation involving hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people. There's a simple, actually enjoyable resource on decision-making, a movie, TV movie called Path to War. And here's a bit from Wikipedia that a television critic, Matt Zoller, cites in his 2016 book named Path to War as the sixth greatest American TV movie of all time. You can see in it Johnson not facing this issue. The data seemed clear. Just, it, I think you'll see parallels with it seemed clear that we should keep escalating in a way that it seems clear that we should geoengineer and other alternatives. Well, we'll look at the Cuban Missile Crisis as an, another way of doing things. Also, the movie Fog of War about McNamara. There's a documentary of him speaking about his experiences, looking back to some, again, to some extent with regret. And speaking of the term Fog of War, another great resource for making decisions in difficult periods would be von Clausewitz's On War. Another big resource is listen to my episode with Marine Corps General Van Riper, because he talked about, well, the Millennium Challenge. They asked him to be the red team in testing the full might of the U.S. military, and he played this rogue state, and he mopped up the floor with them, and he was using not this new fangled stuff. He was using von Clausewitz and tried and true techniques of leadership, and he beat the technology. So listen to that episode 
with me talking to him to learn more about that. Now, the space shuttle. There was some data about launching in coldest temperatures so far. They had some data of what might happen, but they had to extrapolate from not as cold as this time to that cold. People felt desperate. They felt scared not to act. I mean, as I said before, there's more depth that we could go into than I can get into here. There are lots of ways to interpret it, but, and there always will be. But in this case, well, they made the wrong choice to launch and it blew up. They knew that if they chose otherwise, people could always second guess and say that they were wrong. The easier choice was to launch. There was lots of data. Okay, go into more detail to find it out. But this is a case where they opted to launch, not having enough data. They extrapolated pretty far. There's a Harvard case study of conflicting interests of showing how things were set up to make it easy to make the choice to launch. Likewise, as a physicist, I'm always going to say, read Richard Feynman's stories of this decision-making morass. There's lots of others. There's books on design. I think on the quantitative, Tufti's book on the visual display of quantitative information. Lots of stuff on this. More than I can get into here, but something worth studying here. I think that I'm giving cases that are worth looking at that I think these, the decision-making process of extrapolating when you don't have enough data, but you still have to make the choice, even when millions of lives are at stake, even civilizations at stake. That's what to look at more than the numbers of will this sulfur in the air have that effect. That's important. That's a starting point. Okay, so next, building highways into cities. I highly recommend reading The Power Broker. It's this big book that you see it on a lot of New Yorker shelves. I think it's like over 1,000 pages, 1,200 pages, oversized, small type. I just wanted to glance at it. And I just started reading the first couple of pages. Next thing I know, it's a month later, and it took me all that time to read it, and I loved it. Robert Caro, who wrote it, I think he's won every award that the book could win for. Robert Moses, this guy who had an incredible amount of power, he, he always had the data. When he went in to propose something, once he was in power and proposing all these roads and bridges, he always had the data, and he always got the funding because the engineering was so well laid out. He knew what to present. But the data and projections were based on a model as flawed and unfounded as the domino theory that traffic implied demand from citizens wanting to drive places and that more roads would lower congestion. It makes a lot of sense. When you're in traffic, you think, oh, if there was only one more lane, the traffic would go away. The opposite happened most of the time, that when increasing the supply of roads would induce demand to drive. People would adjust. They'd say, oh, there's a road that's unused. Let's move to a new place. Let's get a new job. Let's get a car. The result was congestion, more and more congestion. And we have to live with the results of all these roads and bridges for centuries And those, not just the congestion, but today's climate and pollution problems are a direct result. It's not the only thing, but it's a major contributor to these results. American cities. By contrast, look at Amsterdam. I don't know if you know the story, but Amsterdam was overridden with cars in the 50s and 60s. I think around the 70s is when they started switching. I always thought of Amsterdam as a bicycle, like it's just a bike city. Always had been. I just, I didn't know that it was a conscious effort that people put in to resist the cars. What America went in full bore they resisted. There's a, a channel on YouTube called Not Just Bikes. I highly recommend it. Amsterdam could have looked like Houston does today, and there were proposals for that to happen. Imagine the other way. Imagine Houston looked like Amsterdam and was as livable. The resources here, the power broker, I highly recommend The Death and Life of Great American Cities by Jane Jacobs. I live in Greenwich Village where she lived. She resisted. She said, what are the values that we're pushing here? Is it efficiency? Is it transportation? Or is it neighborhoods and people's lives? how people live, families. Next, the D-Day invasion in Eisenhower. To launch or not to launch an invasion where weather is critical but very difficult to predict. There were no satellites then. 
could have made all the difference. If the moonlight is too bright or there's too much wind, the first people to go were the paratroopers to go behind the lines. And if the wind were bad, depending on the weather, they could have all been killed or like overwhelmingly killed, been completely ineffectual. And, you know, they were supposed to be a second line. I'm not going to go into the details, but the weather played a major role. They couldn't predict it more than a few hours ahead of time. And yet they had to launch because, or not, if they didn't launch one day, they might be able to do it the next day. But if that day didn't work, it might be another month. But in a month, how do you keep a secret, a launch of a couple hundred thousand people secret? It could destroy the launch. So do you launch or not launch? Do you go or don't go? You can't possibly have the data. And yet, if it doesn't work out, Europe could be over. England could be over. That could, Hitler could win, could win everything. You had to imagine that possibility. A great resource here is a TV movie called Ike, Countdown to D-Day, starring Tom Selleck. And it focuses on the decision-making and the process and the teamwork amid civilization in the balance stress. How do you make a choice when civilization is in the balance? That's what they had to do. That's what to study. Engineers, that's input. That's important. Just like knowing what the weather might be was important, but it's not the end of the story. And the decision-making process, that's very important. Next, the Green Revolution and Norman Borlaug. Norman Borlaug, if you don't know the name, he was called the father of the Green Revolution, and he won a Nobel Prize for his work in the Green Revolution. When he was faced with people dying in the streets, hunger, this is before the Green Revolution, they were dying here and now. He could do something. He did what he had to and what he could do to save them. And he did. That included irrigation, new crops, hybridization, lots of techniques that caused the land to produce more food right here and right then. But in the long term, it was unsustainable. And he knew this. He saw this happening from his work that he enabled, most people say, he saved billions of lives. Another way of looking at it was that he did things that made people have more children. And he saw where that went. He used the term, his term here, population monster. If anyone knew population the consequences of its growth, and balancing saving people now and risking bigger problems later versus facing the systematic problems now, he did. And he spent the latter half of his career talking about the population monster. He helped a place called the Population Media Center. I've had its director on my podcast and lots of things like that to work on population. For a resource here, I offer you his quote. This is from when he received the Nobel Prize. He said, The Green Revolution has won a temporary success in man's war against hunger and deprivation. It has given man a breathing space. If fully implemented, the revolution can provide sufficient food for sustenance during the next three decades. But the frightening power of human reproduction must also be curbed. Otherwise, the success of the Green Revolution will be ephemeral only. Most people still fail to comprehend the magnitude and menace of the population monster. Since man is potentially a rational being, however, I'm confident that within the next two decades, he will recognize the self-destructive course he steers along the road of irresponsible population growth. Well, we haven't acted. This is me now, not quoting him anymore. His prediction is happening. And geoengineering will at least repeat the problem, more likely augment it. This seems to me the closest comparison. It's impossible to look at people dying in the streets and not think of how can we save them. And he was saying for the rest of his life, we must also consider the long-term effects. We must also consider not just the intended effect, but also the unintended side effects. Let's go to the Cuban Missile Crisis. The United States found out that Cuba, through the USSR, was building missiles that could reach, I think, hundreds of millions of U.S. uh, of Americans that could kill them instantly in a day. The Joint Chiefs of Staff from the military said the situation was serious. We had to act 
before the missiles were armed. The data was clear, including to JFK. Even JFK thought negotiation couldn't possibly get the missiles out. We must invade. And the question was how to do it. So there were these 12 days, just under two weeks. As it turns out, there was not an invasion, despite the data being very clear. And it seemed like, oh, we have to put everything on the table. And the clearest thing would be to invade because we can, the United States can certainly take out Cuba. Decades later, we learned that the warheads were armed, contrary to what we thought. Castro did have approval to launch, which we thought that he did not. If he expected to be killed, if he was going to get killed, he certainly is going to lose anything more by launching the missiles. So he could have launched missiles to kill tens to hundreds of millions of Americans and start World War III. Data suggested that invading was the best option. It seemed clear. We got to put this on the table. No one wants to invade, certainly not a first world nation invading a third world nation. How would that look to the rest of the world? On the other hand, we have to defend ourselves. Well, negotiation worked and no one thought it would. That was seen as soft. Here, a resource here is the movie 13 Days. I highly recommend it. It's fascinating. I've watched it many, many times. I haven't yet read the book, uh, Robert Kennedy's book on the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was civilization in the balance in a much shorter time frame than we have with our situation here. CVS Drugs, now on a much smaller scale. But for a corporation, CVS Drugs, as I understand, was switching brands to CVS Health. In the process, they realized, well, cigarettes don't really fit with health, fit with drugs, but not health, so maybe we shouldn't sell these things. All the data suggested it's the number one profit item. If someone wants cigarettes and CVS isn't selling them, someone could just walk down the block and go to another drugstore or corner store or some other places to sell cigarettes. There's plenty of places to get cigarettes. If they don't sell them, is it even hard for someone to go somewhere else? And yet they decided to stop selling them. Their profits went down within 12 months, right back up again. The data suggested one thing. They went with their values. And it turns out people stuck with their values. It worked. Likewise, New York City, or maybe it was New York State. New York was going to ban, and this is around the year 2000, was going to ban cigarette smoking in the workplace, including bars, restaurants. People said, if we don't allow smoking in bars, people want to get a drink after work. They want to have a smoke when they drink. People will take the train across the river to New Jersey. Why wouldn't they? It's a quick train ride on the path train. We're just going to lose business. It's going to be a major problem for New York City. A couple years later, New Jersey had to ban cigarettes in New Jersey because people were going into Manhattan because they did not want smoke when they had their drinks after work. People didn't know what clean was. Once they knew what it was, they liked it. Liked it enough that New Jersey had to pass its ban as well. And then the big case. I should have gotten a quote from Bury the Chains by podcast guest Adam Hochschild. But he talked about, if you in the late 18th century suggested there's a problem with slavery. Slavery at that point had been, as far as anyone knew, had been in every culture since before recorded history. It was not seen as bad. It wasn't seen as even as neutral, probably. It was probably seen as good, certainly by the people who had the decision-making power to keep it or not keep it. And people in England, they didn't see it. It was far, far away. What did it mean for them? Sugar, molasses, rum, cotton, coffee, cocoa. And yet this small group said, we have to ban it. And the big argument, one of the big arguments was, if we don't do it, Spain will, Portugal will, Netherlands will, France will, Sweden will. Ultimately, it took time. It took a lot of work. But the small group of Thomas Clarkson, William Wilberforce, they got England to ban first the slave trade, and then a couple of decades later, the practice of slavery in the British Empire. Now, of course, slavery is around today. It didn't end. But it did not happen that if we don't do it, the others will. Once England stopped the slave trade, they had the credibility and the incentive and the Navy 
to stop the other countries and the other countries then banned the slave trade as well. The practice continued for some time. Well, this slavery exists today, so it has not ended it. But it went, I mean, this changed all of human culture. It was a few people that slavery, while it exists today, is nowhere legal. No one thought it possible. People would have thought you were a crackpot to suggest ending slavery. This is not me. This is from Adam Hochschild's book and from other podcast guests, Eric Metaxas's book, uh, Amazing Grace. These are cases that I think it's worth studying. And actually, I think it's the most important part to study is what happens when there's a major global decision, lives on the line in the orders of millions, even all of humanity. What do we do? One of the main things is what mental models do we have? What's guiding these decisions? How do we interpret the data? Not just what are the numbers. I should have that Einstein quote, how you, what model you have determines what you find. I'm not in Gernot Wagner's or David Keith's head, so I don't know exactly what they're thinking. I can only say what I see from the outside. I think the situation that a lot of these people who promote geoengineering have in their mind is we're heading to a cliff and we have to stop the car. They say the best solution is to take the foot off the gas. We have to stop emissions. That would decrease pollution and greenhouse gases, but that doesn't stop the car. Their solutions, I think from their perspective, would be like putting some chemical in the gas to get the car to stop so it doesn't go anymore. Just stop this car however we can. I'll grant that view that we're heading toward a cliff We've got to stop the car. We've got to do whatever it takes to stop the car as best we can. This is one perspective that comes to mind for me is that looking at the climate and lowering the temperature misses the full situation. Our environmental problems are more than just temperature. If they see the cliff in front rapidly approaching, I think they see it like at the end of the movie Thelma and Louise, where there's this broad, flat space, a head that's to the left and the right, and ahead there's a cliff. Now, in that movie, there are cops behind. There's a whole other story. I don't want to get into that. It's just, just the geography is that I think they see there's a cliff in front. Otherwise, it's just flat land. But there's a lot more than climate. I think if we say that there's a cliff ahead that we could, if we keep going straight, that we could go off of, it's more like one a thin promontory or like a thin pier over, I don't know, water or cliff on either side to the left and to the right because there are many other dangers besides climate. To the right, might be biodiversity loss. That could doom us if we don't, if you know, the insects aren't pollinating plants. To the left, could be pollution, plastic in the ocean, forever chemicals. That could doom us. About 10 million people a year die just from breathing air. We needed centuries of the Atlantic slave trade to reach those kind of numbers that we get in a year. But we need more dimensions than just to the left and the right because there's more ways that we could fall. Maybe there are landmines along the way, which represent maybe deforestation. That could doom us. And maybe there's huge storms around. That's another problem. That might represent ocean acidification. And we would have to construct more and more things to represent overpopulation, overfishing, running out of minerals, depleting aquifers, depleting topsoil. You've seen the headlines and you know many more of these environmental problems. And if all we do is lower the temperature, well, geoengineering, most probably neutral with respect to them, but some it would exacerbate. It might buy us time with temperature while causing the car to crash and fall off and kill us all while causing the car to, which it would exacerbate, not buy us time. Geoengineering, as I see it, is more like we're headed toward a cliff, but already we're at cliffs to the left, to the right, landmines, storms, and everything. And geoengineering is like, in that context, slashing the tires, or if it's putting something in the gas, it's causing the engine to seize violently, which might itself possibly, well, it might keep us from the cliff in front of climate change, of one aspect of climate change, but it could cause us to lose control. We could fall off to the left. We could fall off to the right. We could hit a landmine. We could just crash around and just die from flipping around in the car too much using that analogy. Maybe I'm pushing the analogy too far. 
But this model of we've got to take the gloves off, we've got to do whatever it takes. Yes, it might not work. Yes, there might be problems, but we've got to do it. That misses what historically these unintended side effects can be bigger than the intended effect. I believe it feels like they're coming from this domino theory that we have to do it. There's no alternative. It might not be pretty, but we've got to do it. There's self-confidence of having all the numbers, which are a low-level set of numbers that are inputs to the decision-making process, as I see it. That self-confidence and that their version of their domino theory blinds them from seeing anything other than the one problem that they're... Let's just grant that it'll lower the global temperature. All the other side effects, the line of thinking, it's repeating the line of thinking that got us here. What are some lessons? Again, I'm just doing this in response. It's now a long response. I'm not sure how long I've been recording for, but it's a long response to a couple tweets and they've spent more time to edit it and get it down to get their highlights. So these lessons are not going to be the be all and end all of lessons. But one, acting out of desperation, helplessness, hopelessness, even when we actually are desperate, produces poor decisions. Just because we're desperate doesn't mean we have to act desperate or act out of desperation. We don't have to ignore long-term to think short-term. That's what Borlaug was trying to teach us. We can regret wrong decisions. Also, study as much as we want to study the science and the technology and the engineering, also study leadership and decision-making. Rarely do technical solutions solve social problems. Social solutions solve social problems. And I think it's important to look in those directions. So I recommend, that's another lesson, is look for social solutions to social problems. Look, for example, at Machai Viravidya in Thailand, the Population Media Center. They have solved things that most people considered absolutely impossible. And most, when people think population, the first thing they think of is the one-child policy in, in China. And they think, oh, forced abortions, forced sterilizations. Or they think eugenics. And they think, oh, you want to be the Nazis. And yet these people did the opposite of forced, purely voluntary, non-coercive, leading to increases in prosperity, abundance per person, and stability for the country. So study these things. Also, another lesson, expect unintended side effects to be greater than effects. Another big lesson Norman Borlaug, was, he eventually realized and tried to act on. And then there's how to learn any performance-based skill, such as making decisions under stress. Practice. Want to get to Carnegie Hall? Want to get to Wimbledon, the NBA Finals? It's practice. You have to practice. If you haven't practiced, you haven't developed the skills. Do you want to live sustainably? Try it. If you pollute more than average, you probably don't know many solutions that work. I just spoke with James Rebank. He's a best-selling author. He's, um, I mean, New York Times, tremendous books. The second one was A Pastoral Song, and the first one was The Shepherd's Life. He wrote about how he, along with the community around him, was taking the steps toward making what would become an industrial farm. Over the course of time, he learned more about it and realized that's not the direction he wanted to go, and he went, moved into the direction of regenerative. Turns out all those people who were telling him, oh, he was on the farm, he knew better than them. And they were saying regenerative, and now he's moving much more in the regenerative direction and bringing others with him. What am I getting at here? He practiced it, and then he learned, I believe he would say, it's a much better life to live in stewardship with the environment, in concert with it, in harmony with it, not dominating it, not oh, this technology didn't do everything we wanted. Let's get another technology. Let's double down. Bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more and more and more and more invasive. And then watch Fog of War to see how McNamara, how flawed the process was of many things, especially the descent into, into Vietnam. And again, listen to my episode with uh, Marine Corps General von Riper about implementing von Clausewitz, who wrote his book in the time of Napoleon. And that's what he used to defeat the high-tech, better technology, better in quotes, of the U.S. military in the Millennium Challenge, and he had backward technology, 
But he won because it was teamwork. It was leadership. It was humanity. It was recognizing that there's going to be a fog of war and still being able to, that's what we have to learn how to act. So solutions from these lessons. My goal with the solutions, just like the lessons, I'm not trying to be comprehensive, just some quick thoughts because I don't want to take too, too long to respond to David Keith's tweets. For top of the line, there is a solution that we know is possible to do. And that is, and it's not a full solution, but it's a major part. That is to live sustainably. Everyone listening to me now can live significantly more sustainably, especially if you're an American. How do I know we can do it? Because humans have lived sustainably for about 300,000 years up until very recently. Now, the knee-jerk response is, but we live differently today. We can't do that now. We'd have to take time to transition. Yes, how we live is what we have to change. The longer we wait, the harder it gets to change. The more we get entitled and spoiled and stuck and unable to do things like forage, to live without a fridge, which we can do. And we have done. Oh, maybe the population is too high. That's a problem we have to face. If you try to come up with every problem that could have come up and solve them all in the abstract and prove that it can be done, before you act, you will never, we will never act. If we commit and then try, we will face the problems that we face and we can solve them. It should not be the case that technology designed to make our lives better prevents us from making our lives better. If that's an effect of a technology, we should immediately and as fast as we can reduce our dependence on that technology. I just recorded a conversation with a guy who lost his legs to flesh-eating disease when he was in high school. Now I ask you, would you rather live sustainably, this option I just presented, or lose both legs to a disease that almost kills you? Because if you prefer living sustainably, as everyone that I've asked would prefer, well, he was minutes from death at the time. This was 2009, if I remember right. But he just now, in 2021, returned from Tokyo with a silver medal in the Paralympics. And he shared with me on the podcast how lucky his life is. He says, I've had a pretty lucky life. Oh, I had one unlucky thing, but generally it's been a lucky life. And he loves his life. I mean, he told me he's got a job that he loves. He just won this competition. He's relatively young, so he'll almost certainly be in for more. He He was, I'm very glad to be on your podcast, Josh. He points out everybody suffers. And we all face challenges, often that we didn't ask for. If he can, with the choices that you don't want, right, he lost both his legs. If he can make a great life despite that, we can do the same with the preferable choice. Only we won't be losing our legs. What we'll have to do is eat more vegetables, live closer to family, which means spending more time with family. It's mostly life improvements. They, the people who promote geoengineering downplay the possibility of living sustainably. Now, listeners to this podcast know that I lived originally like the average American, probably polluting more with my MBA and and PhD. I thought, you know, fusion is the answer. We can just make things more efficient. I was whole hog into we can tech our way out of this. We, you know, markets and innovation, technology, engineering, that's the solution. While I was polluting probably definitely more than the average in the world, probably more than the average American, which is a lot, but I've dropped it a good 90% according to the online calculators. Now, it was as hard for me to do that as it was for anyone. It took me time. I had very few role models. But once I committed to doing it, once I committed first to avoiding packaged food, to avoiding flying for a year, once I committed and said, I'm going to do this, then it became doable. I hope you know the quote, when you commit to doing something, the world conspires to make it possible for you and on ways you could never imagine before committing. We have not done that, and that would work. But 300,000 years, people with stone tools could do what we can't? How is this possible? Of course it's possible. 
of course we can do it. Now that I've dropped 90%, a lot of people think there's a certain number of things you have to do. Uh, you know, carpool or switch to an electric vehicle, stop flying, eat less meat. There's a certain number of things to do. Stop using straws. That's like this idea that you do it and then you're done. It's much more, as I find it, a set of skills that you learn. As I described, as you practice it, you develop the skills. And you, I find that I can do more and more and more. So now having dropped 90%, I'm still looking for more things to do because it's living by my values, values of stewardship, values of what I do affects others. And I want to take responsibility for that. This is not hardship. It's the opposite. It's the other way was living, ignoring how what I did polluted other people. I had to twist myself up inside knowing that I'm polluting the world and I don't really need a lot of these things. And the more that I do without things, I haven't turned on my air conditioner living in Manhattan for years. I mean, every year the super comes in, uh, not the super, but the, the handyman comes in to change the filter on the, on the air conditioning. I pay for the air conditioning. I can't prevent, I can't stop that because it's central air for the whole building. But he comes in, looks at the filter, hasn't been touched. I say, leave it in, don't put a new one in. And then the next year it happens again. Most people in New York City put the air conditioning on. Was this hardship? I don't know. I mean, definitely there are times when I'm less comfortable and I get less work done because I'm sweating. But I'm not really sweating because I put the fan on. I use the fan. That's technology. Actually, I plan on going off grid at least one month this winter because I use so little electricity because the more skills I developed, the easier it becomes. And if you have not done these skills, you think it's hard. I hope you feel otherwise. But people think, everyone that I speak to thinks it's really hard. In fact, the more technology you use, I find the pattern seems to be the harder it is to stop using it. You'd think people who pollute the most and who have the most resources and pollute the most, you'd think they could trim the fat the most and it would be easiest for them to reduce. But in actual practice, I find they are the ones that resist the most. At first I thought, well, if, if you think of it in terms of how much fat can they trim, how many things can they stop doing? Can they sell their Learjet? It's more like the people who use the most heroin are the ones who find it hardest to stop the habit. The people who use the most cocaine are the ones who have the hardest time stopping it because they build up this dependence. They're addicted. So the people who are most addicted, I was pretty well addicted before I, you know, I didn't go cold turkey, but I reduced a lot. And the longer I go without the things I was addicted to, the less addicted to them I am. Let me get back to solutions. Engaging people we disagree with, who think that there's no problem, who see population as impossible to change. Engaging with people we disagree with. Not a lot of that going on in this country these days. It reminds me of uh, in the run-up to the last election, my dad, he was in Pennsylvania, swing state. And I said, Dad, if you want to play a role, you got to talk to people who might vote for the other person, get them not to vote. The people he knew who were going to vote his way, they were going to vote. So he, one thing he could do is get non-voters who agreed with him to go out and vote. Another thing would be to get people he disagreed with either to not vote or to switch votes. But he would not talk to them. He would not engage with people he disagreed with. I'm like, Dad, you care about the outcome of this election? Oh, yes, a lot. Well, you got to engage with them. Well, he wouldn't. So on my podcast, you see that I engage with hardcore Trump supporters, not the most environmentally minded people that you think, hardcore Republicans, including uh, members of Congress, people in the military, evangelicals. And I lead them to share their environmental values, which everybody cares about the environment. I don't care who you're, if you think someone doesn't care, it's, they might not show it in a way that you would, but they care. And when they share it in a supportive, non-judgmental context, which I provide, then for them to act on it is actually meaningful and rewarding for them. And yet most people that I see acting on the environment, uh, env environmentalists say, they tend to look at them as problems, as opponents. So in, that's a big solution, is to engage people that we disagree with, which leads to the Pope and evangelicals. The Pope is sending out 
these encyclicals and, and, and documents saying this is a big, big problem, you know what would work really well? Is for him to say four words. You can use contraception. There's plenty of precedent and ways of interpreting the Bible that could justify this decision. In fact, as I understand, historically, they were pretty close to allowing it in the past. Likewise, are the evangelicals. You know, one of the things I think of is this prophecy that your progeny will, as many grains of sand in the beach and stars in the sky, that's how many offspring you will have or descendants you'll have. Well, imagine you go to the beach and you can snap your finger and for every grain of sand, a person appeared. Well, those grains of sand are pretty small. There would, and if you take all the grains of sand and all the beaches in the world, there's, you can't possibly fit all the people just from physical space on the earth. So take that prophecy at face value. God didn't mean all at once. It was spaced out over time. And if you do something that lowers the chance of it happening, of them spacing out over time, you're messing up the prophecy. Anyway, I don't want to get into scripture, but it seems to me that once you shall have dominion over the earth was interpreted to mean you can dominate over everything. And there are many evangelicals and others who have interpreted that to mean stewardship, not domination, but stewardship. This is a gift, not just for you. If you use up more than your share, that's taking a gift that wasn't for you and using it up. And so many have reinterpreted or interpreted what was once to mean domination to mean stewardship. Likewise, people ever used to think the earth was at the center of the universe. People don't think that anymore. Well, the church followed on that one and led its constituents in that one. It could do that again. Another solution, contraception. I don't have any kids. I haven't had a vasectomy. But if you can imagine colonizing Mars or any of these other high-tech solutions or spraying the earth with sulfur in order to cause the temperature to change, I can imagine an implant that can stop and start the flow of sperm. 40%, I understand, nearly half of all pregnancies are accidental. That means people were trying to avoid it. I think there'd be great demand for, imagine, I think this would be a lot easier than getting to Mars, would be a device with, I don't know, a button or a lever or electronic something that when you press it one way, it enables the sperm to go through. When you press it the other way, it stops the sperm. And this could be very small. I don't, maybe this is out there. I don't know. For that matter, there could be something that works with women instead of tying tubes or I don't know exactly how that happens. But I can imagine a similar device for women. I could even imagine popes endorsing this thing. The specifics of the technological innovation, that this vasectomy on-off thing or reversible tube side thing, I'm not trying to propose that as a specific solution, although actually I think it would be a pretty good idea. When we change our values, we will innovate just as much, but in the direction of the new values. And these values, this is how we make our decisions. If we just say the numbers, the numbers we have to interpret them through our values. And if our values are efficiency and desperation, we're not going to make great decisions. I propose values of stewardship and increasing Earth's ability to sustain life. And this geoengineering stuff is not that. We can come up with more solutions if we try. Now, few people that I see are innovating by the the values of stewardship, certainly not in Silicon Valley, in Washington, D.C., or academia. So the research that I propose is into developing the social and emotional skills of making these difficult decisions at a higher level. Yes, by all means, keep researching what can we do, what might happen, what might not happen, what would work, what wouldn't work, and that is input to the other big part, which is research and understand these historical cases I described, that's the data. What's happened before? Because the challenger decision, the decision or non-decision to go into Vietnam, the lucky we didn't make a decision to invade Cuba, these are things to learn from. 
by no means are they parallel. There's more differences than there are similarities. And yet, there are some similarities. And there are some, th- some things that we can learn there. And if that's not the discussion we're having, I put to you, that's the discussion to have. That's the data to look for. That's what we should be thinking of. Not just, we've got to put this on the table. Yes, I agree. We have to be willing to take it off the table. It looks pretty clear to take it off the table to me. Keep researching, yes. Act in stewardship. That, there are problems with that as well because all of the fossil fuels that we've released carbon dioxide and lots of pollution and other greenhouse gases from that was trapped away in the earth and planting all the plants in the world or planting a trillion trees does not put that stuff back in the ground. So we do need sequestration and other techniques and we have to change our values. I believe that the more that we live by values of stewardship and really live this, not just talk about it, try to live sustainably on a personal level for some time. I got to tell a story about a client of mine worked at a major, major oil company, right? Top oil company in the world. I was giving him straight leadership coaching. This was at the time, it took me about three months to throw, to fill a load of garbage. He was an engineer moving into management and I was coaching him in leadership. So we'd meet once a week for an hour. Before the hour started and after the hour ended, we'd chat a bit. We got to be friends. We were still in touch. One time when we're chatting, he says, hey, Josh, it took me three weeks to fill up my load of garbage. I didn't know where this came from. He explained that he heard me talk about how at this point I was I think it was around three months it took me to fill a load of garbage at that time. And he heard me doing that and he thought, oh, maybe I'll give it a shot. So I was not coaching him in sustainability. I was coaching him in straight leadership. But he heard that and I was a role model and he gave it a shot. Interesting. A couple months later, we meet again and he says, Josh, the skills that I learned practicing not bringing waste into my home, I'm using those same skills at work, except for there's a big difference. When I apply them at work, it affects all of Latin America. Systemic change begins with personal transformation. If we don't change the values and live by those values, and if you're flying around, if you're polluting like the average American or even above the world average, which is like, I don't know, a fifth of what the average American is, you still have to learn those skills. You still have to play your scales. You still have to practice your ground strokes. If you want to get to Wimbledon, you've got to practice your ground strokes. In fact, no matter how good you are, if you watch Federer or whoever playing Djokovic, I guess I should say, at the, before Wimbledon, they're still practicing their ground strokes. You never get too good to practice the basics. The basics are always helpful, always useful. On a personal level, if we are, that, this is a solution I should have mentioned before. Everyone practice the basics immediately, right now. Everyone listen to my voice, especially if you're Gunnar Wagner or David Keith. If you yourself are not practicing as best you can, if you're flying around, you haven't learned the skills yet. You have more skills to learn. And when you do, you'll find that you can do things beyond what you thought. You can live a happier life It's much more doable than you think. And whatever you think you're going to give up, you'll go through a transition period and you'll find it's much more doable. And then you'll find it can be done on a a national level, on a cultural, on a regional level. If America does it, I believe that we will finally have some credibility. If, If Imagine a large portion of Americans and America in general brings down its waste. Did I say quality of life? No. Quality of life and burning fossil fuels are not correlated. In fact, often anti-correlated. There's some correlation, I should say. But I can speak from experience that if most of us can drop by 90%, and that's just life improvement. If you don't believe me, try it. Try I mean, really commit. Don't just like half-heartedly do it. If you really try, you'll find that you can do it. And you'll see that the nation could do it. Overnight, probably not. But the more role models we have, the faster it'll be. And the more technology we implement in stewardship, the faster and easier it'll be. Then we can do for the rest of the world what England did after banning the slave trade for itself was it got the other countries to ban the slave trade too. And that's what, in response to David Keith's tweet, that's what I don't think he, I think he was downplaying 
the fun, the freedom, the joy, the community, the connection, the meaning and purpose that comes with reducing. It's not something we have to do. It's something we get to do. It's something we'll wonder why we took so long. All right, this was a very long episode. I hope they listened to it, and I hope people will forgive that this was not hastily put together, but it didn't go through the editing processes that their article and books did. But I hope it was of some value, and I hope it spurs more conversation. I hope it spurs more action, especially to act in stewardship and reduce our fossil fuel use and other pollution and other sorts of things that are lowering Earth's ability to sustain life because I think we will like life more when we live in stewardship and increase Earth's ability to sustain life.